his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. All right, folks. 810 in the Twin Cities, 83 degrees. Time now for one of my favorite guests, Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. How are you? I'm doing great, but I'm worried. There's nothing to talk about today. <laughs> we were chatting, actually, folks, um, in the break, I was chatting with uh, Professor Schultz in the break about just once again, just head spinning developments in, in the world of, of politics at the national level. And the headlines across the country are they talking about the health care, the Cassidy, Graham Cassidy bill? Are they talking about the showdown with North Korea? All enormous stories. No, it is the president's tweets and responses involving Steph Curry of the Golden State Warriors, the superstar, and another superstar, LeBron James. What do you make of this? Well, my first words, I want to just use the word bizarre right off the bat. But, but you, know, what's, you know, for anybody who wants to think sports and politics aren't connected, um, it, there's a long history of it. You know, we know that. And this is what we're looking at here is just an unusual relationship between sports and politics right now, which I think goes back what the Colin Kaepernick about 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 kneeling you know um, you know during the knee during the, the national anthem during national anthem Trump not liking the idea and saying that it's disrespect it's Steph Curry coming to his defense as well as other athletes and then it's Trump you know criticizing withdrawing the invitation to the Golden State Warriors to the White House LeBron James chiming in I mean this is I mean it's, it's like a soap opera you know but but if I can sort of sort out sort of one thought here is that. You know, on, on one level, you know, you know, Trump is breaking the mold in, um, in another way. Usually presidents um, don't comment on things such as when athletes do things like you know, express their, their, their First Amendment free speech rights or they engage in making statements like this. And Trump feels like he needs to sort of, you know, interject himself into this and then does something even further, which is what? Is to uninvite um, a team to the White House, which is pretty much always a pro forma thing that they do. Right. And, and um, you know, it's interesting because I guess part of what precipitated this, although Trump had been talking about Colin Kaepernick and speech saying, you know, uh, that, that, you know, NFL owners should just fire any players that take a knee, which is probably only going to result in more people taking a knee. But, you know, mm-hmm. that got a lot of applause in the speech he gave. Um, Steph Curry was asked about a trip to the White House at a news conference, and he said, well, if I had to vote, I would vote against it. Mm-hmm. And that was when the president, apparently seeing that comment, tweeted that, you know, it's an honor to come to the White House and Steph Curry's not invited. Right. Even though Steph Curry had signaled that he probably wouldn't come anyway. Mm-hmm. And uh, then LeBron James tweets, you bum, at the president um, and basically says Steph Curry said he wasn't going. Um, you can't disinvite him. So it's just it, – but these tweets have gotten hundreds of thousands of retweets. Mm-hmm. It's um, – and to think that this is sort of what everybody's focusing on right now when there are all these other issues at stake. Right, because on one level, um, this doesn't amount to a hill of beans in the world, you know, on, on one level here. You know, this is – you know, but, but it's – but you're right. You know, we were – during the um, – off the air, I was saying to you, this is probably lighting up the social media, and it exactly is. And, 
again, sort of put it in a little bit of a perspective here um, on, on, on one level. It, it, it's sort of Trump, you know, on one level taking the, the cultural war, which for many, many years for many Republicans, but certainly not all, which has been directed against Hollywood, against Hollywood actors and actresses, and just Hollywood in general. And now this kind of cultural war, you know, is, is moving into the area of politics. And this is going to be really fascinating to watch because I think Trump also had a tweet today, too, if I remember correctly, in terms of um, the NFL and the work that it's taking in terms of trying to prevent, was it concussions and stuff like that? Um, I didn't see that one. I yeah. know that the NFL has responded. I mean, I can look at yeah. his Twitter feed right, right now because there have been so many, but yeah, the NFL was... responded uh, with a sharp critique uh, of the president. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. it, well, What I'm getting at here is, is in a variety of different ways. Um, you know, if we think of football as sort of being you know, one of the quintessential American sports, I mean, it's really sort of laced with patriotism. You know, yeah, I mean, I, I asked my students at one point, undergraduates, is there, what's one event that defines the United States? And they say Super Bowl Sunday, you know, that it sort of captures everything about the United States. And so now we're having football, we're having sports become yet a new cultural divide in the United States. Um, and that's probably not good for professional sports um, in terms of the fact that we're now going to have what? Probably, I'm going to say, red and blue teams. We're going to have divides in that area, and we're, st- we're st- divides in that area in the same way that we're seeing other kind of divides in our culture. And, and again, I just don't think this is good because we're just seeing absolutely everything in our society divide us. Right. Um, yeah, the tweet he put out about the NFL was Roger Goodell, the NFL, just put out a statement trying to justify the total disrespect certain players show to our country, uh, tell them to stand. Uh, I can also say that his tweets are just as, – as you look at the tweets, the number of retweets is just actually rolling. I never really kind of looked at it that way. Uh, and going up, that has um, – oh, it just went from 66. Um, 8 to 66.9 thousand tweets, which is – Obviously, a considerable amount, mm-hmm. but it's. Um, I think amongst his base, though, mm-hmm. I, I think that these moves probably are going to be popular. Oh, it is. That's exactly the issue here. It's about a divide here. It's a divide between part of his base, you know. And this kind of reminds me back to the what the nineteen sixties, early nineteen seventies. What was that slogan among some? My country, love it or leave it, or something like that. There's a sense in which um, patriotism. Um, has been defined as I think now um, you stand for the you stand for the Star Spangled Banner that it's not appropriate to sort of you know express you know dissent even though I think for many of us dissent is as much a part of of, of American culture as it is as is um, being as, as patriotic as it is saluting the flag and so this just seems to me again just opening up um, um, old wounds and new wounds um, that just are not going to be good for, for, for NFL. And I feel sorry for the NFL. I feel sorry for all the sports because they're now going to have to figure out how to extract themselves out of this, and I don't think they can. And then secondarily, I want to say, going back to it, is that normally presidents don't get themselves enmeshed in these type of cultural battles, especially you know, with, with sports you know, at, at this level domestically. They just sort of say, okay, um, if this is the choice of Kaepernick to do what he wants to do, fine. If Curry wants to do that, it's fine. But Trump seems to take everything absolutely personally and has found, at least among his base, some of this works very well. But it certainly, I think, doesn't do much in terms of um, expanding his base or helping his influence in terms of 
working with Congress, working with Democrats, working with lots of different people. Right. And, you know, Kaepernick is, is, is one issue because I think he is very polarizing. Steph Curry is enormously popular. Yes. I, mean, I, th- I think he's probably one of the most popular NBA players or professional athletes in, in, in the country, mm-hmm. not the world. So it'll be interesting to see how far that goes. Um, we do have to take a break. I do want to ask you about the federal health care situation and also later on a lot going on in the state of Minnesota with the breakdown of mediation and also a health care crisis that I talked to you about, uh, this waiver that the president has not granted or the Trump administration has not granted, uh, drastic cuts to MinCare. This is all going to happen very, very quickly or could happen very, very quickly. So a lot to talk about. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about John McCain and we'll talk about what looks like maybe uh, the end of this final effort or this additional effort to repeal and replace Obamacare, this Graham-Cassidy bill. Keep it here, News Radio 830. It is 821 in the Twin Cities. Uh, Esme Murphy, along with Professor David Schultz, we do want to get to some state issues. We'll probably get those uh, in our next half hour with uh, the mediation collapsing between the governor and also uh, legislative leaders, as well as a health care crisis here, a, a standoff with the White House. Uh, that could lead to higher premiums uh, for individuals uh, who are buying on the individual market and also um, uh, could lead to severe cuts in a program that helps 100,000 low-income Minnesotans. But let's talk about this health care bill, uh, this Graham uh, bill, Lindsey Graham bill. Um, this, this is a bill that looks like it's probably going to go down to defeat because of John McCain. Right. And this would be the second time that John McCain has killed, um, in the last few months, efforts for the Trump administration and the Senate to try to repeal Obamacare and replace it or just repeal it. And he did it this time, claiming and saying that um, he doesn't like the process. Didn't necessarily say he disagreed with the bill, uh, although he that's open, but he said that any kind of change has to be bipartisan and is insisting that the bill go through its normal process, which means committee hearings, votes, amendments, and so forth. And so he's standing pretty firm. Uh, we already know that Rand Paul, uh, Senator Rand Paul, has said that he's going to vote against it. Um, they can only take one more person. At this point, if, if, these, if these were the only two people who voted against it and all the other Republicans um, and others voted for it in favor, who's expected to vote, could vote in favor, it would be 50-50, Vice President cast the tying, tying vote. But we suspect that um, Susan Collins from from Maine and Lisa Murkowski um, from from Alaska may very well vote against it, but it's only going to take one of them. And it's looking pretty likely that at least one of them and maybe a couple of other senators may vote against it, which means that one of the big promises of Trump and of the Republicans to repeal Obamacare may very well die yet again. Right. And, and so they basically need to get – they need to have 50 vote right. yes. 50. <laughs> or, or, or actually, I guess – yeah, I guess they need to have 50, don't they? They need to have 50. Yes, and, and then, and then, and then, and then um, Pence can break the tie. That's right. And, and again, right now, it looks like they're at, they're at exactly 50 right now. And again, as I was mentioning, it's likely that Susan Collins will vote against it, which will be one Republican defector. And remember, Lisa Murkowski is, is, not, is not a Republican, is an independent. Um, she could very well vote against it. But I've also heard rumors of a couple of other Republicans who might consider voting against it, too. Um, but I think it's pretty likely that some of those Republicans um, um, will be taking their cues from, from John McCain 
and not supporting it. So I think the last that I heard, I think the vote is scheduled for, what, Tuesday or Wednesday this week, if, in fact, they're going to bring it to a vote. And I could see Mitch McConnell deciding not to bring it up to a vote because I don't think he wants to suffer another defeat at this point in the same way that he had a pretty embarrassing defeat for him several months ago. Um, the two sponsors of this bill are uh, Senator Bill Cassidy and Lindsey Graham. Uh, Bill Cassidy from Louisiana, Lindsey Graham from South Carolina. Uh, there's actually a uh, debate scheduled tomorrow night. It was announced sort of late, I think Thursday, uh, that Amy Klobuchar and Bernie Sanders are going to debate uh, Senators Cassidy and Graham live on CNN tomorrow. I think the edge off this de- the edge on this debate has been taken off somewhat by John McCain announcing he's going to vote against it because the math, as you were just saying, makes it appear that this ain't going to work. But when it was announced on Thursday, McCain had not yet said where he how he was going to vote. Lindsey Graham actually is one of his is his best friend in the Senate, so there was some speculation that Graham could you know kind of drag McCain along. What do you think of this debate and the fact that Amy Klobuchar is going to be standing up there with Bernie Sanders uh, debating uh, in a primetime audience uh, against these two authors of this bill? This is really fascinating. And, you know, we could first say it's just a debate. It's just Bernie Sanders and Amy Klobuchar who are who are representing, you know, independent and, and representing the Democrats in terms of opposing it. But I think we obviously have to read subtext into this. And the fact that the Democrats now are moving towards, and Al Franken has done this, seem to be moving towards embracing health care reform, especially um, the single payer. Which is, which is essentially sort of government-guaranteed health insurance. Government-guaranteed health care, which is where Bernie Sanders is at this point. And Klobuchar's not there. Not there yet, but I think that's what's interesting about it. I think she's, she's clearly sort of starting to be, you know, you know, sort of test the waters in terms of, you know, is this where the Democrats want to be, you know, or, or maybe we're going to find out tomorrow night in the debate, or is she articulating some different themes in contrast to Sanders, but clearly I think she's trying to figure out a way, if I can read even more subtext into it, you know, in terms of how the Democrats can start to heal that fissure, you know, you know, which has really been between sort of the Clinton versus Sanders people, and Klobuchar was part of the part of the Clinton group at this point. So, so we we have to look at this, I think, beyond just a healthcare debate, but as a debate that's laying out perhaps something in terms of 2018 themes for the Democrats, um, also in terms of. Um, I think, you know, anticipating the fact that she's coming up for election, although I think it'd be a surprise if she were in serious danger. But then, of course, how it cements the Democratic Party together. And if she's still looking at a national position at some point, this doesn't hurt her in terms of the highlighting of her on CNN, on national television. Yeah, I, I, I you know, I have to, I think it has to be interpreted as her positioning herself for a national run, I do because I, I don't, I don't think she is going to stand up there. But well, well, Cassidy and Graham, obviously, they wrote the bill together, so they're going to be saying the same thing. Right. I think she's going to differentiate herself from Bernie Sanders. Obviously, they are on the same side of the aisle, but I think there are differences there. She is not advocating and has not, to this right. point, a, a single-payer or government-guaranteed health care for all. She hasn't been there. She's positioned herself throughout her career as more of a moderate. Mm-hmm. And I, I think this is um, I think this is a big night for her. I do, too. That's a, and that's why I'm saying is I think what will be fascinating is to see how she, you know, how she differentiates versus, again, how much 
she's looking at the fact that again there's a lot of people out there within the democratic party you know who are who are moving towards um again embracing um single payer who are who are you know sort of trying to move the Democratic Party further to the left on a variety of issues, which is where Bernie Sanders is, and again, to see how she differentiates herself. And again, if we think of it at this point also, if in fact she's thinking of running in 2020 or being a vice presidential candidate in 2020, we all know, you know, Sanders at this point has all but declared that he's going to run in 2020. So there could be some sense in terms of how does she posture herself in terms of either an alternative to Sanders or I'll throw it out here as a possible vice presidential candidate if Bernie Sanders were to be the presidential candidate. Wow. Okay. That that would be interesting. I think that there's um, enough of a difference there, yes, and and it's it's going to be interesting. And I also think that um, she'll be the only woman mm-hmm. on the stage. Um, she has often told the story about um, one of the things that that led her into political activism was the very difficult birth of her daughter and being mm-hmm. uh, kicked out of the hospital and, you know, a day. And I, I mean, I, I expect stories like that. Yep. And I expect her um, to channel what I think has made her so popular here is that I think she is obviously somebody who's very, very smart, but she also has uh, an ability when she's really on, which is, you know, most of the time she, she has a way of, of making herself seem or make – Appearing extremely accessible, mm-hmm. um, and I think that that's something that she can do pretty well. I, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how she does, and uh, it'll be really interesting to see the reactions here. I don't think this debate has quite the um, uh, quite the momentum that it did on Thursday when it was first announced, when it really wasn't clear about where the votes were. Right. But um, it's going to be interesting. I'll be watching. Well, I think we'll all be watching at this point, and I think that's what Amy Klobuchar is hoping at this point, as well as, the, Democrat, as, well as the Democratic Party. All right. Uh, listen, folks, we have to take a break. Chatting with Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. Uh, we're going to, after the weather break, we're going to talk about um, some really interesting situations. Uh, mediation collapses between uh, the Democratic governor, Republican legislators, and also uh, also part of the health care debate as well. This whole issue of this waiver that we might not get from the president, uh, it's a complicated issue, but it could have some very real impact uh, on a lot of people very, very soon. So that's coming up with David Schultz. Keep it right here. You're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It's 8.36 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy along with Professor David Schultz. We do want to get to some state issues, including this uh problem that it could occur because the Trump administration is not granting a waiver that the state thought it was going to get. Complicated situation. The impact is going to be significant for many, many people. But before that, let's talk about North Korea. How surprised were you by the president's speech before the United Nations? I was very surprised by that one. That I, you know, that even, even though I have never been surprised in the last year and a half, we've been talking about Donald Trump, you know, that on a different level, this one did surprise me because I didn't expect him to take that bellicose or that belligerent of approach where he just came out and basically said, you know, he'll destroy North Korea. And you don't usually expect that 
you know, at, at the United Nations. You don't expect that kind of a tenor in language. And so even for Trump, that, that did sort of push me in a direction where I, I was kind of surprising. And it's really just sort of escalating the, the rhetoric, and I think it's escalating the chances that something bad could, go, could happen at this point because we now have North Korea threatening, what, a, a detonation of a hydrogen bomb in the, you know, in the Pacific Ocean. We had today um, U.S. military flying basically um, reconnaissance or flying um, its planes at the northern edge of the North Korean demilitarized zone. I mean, we're, we're, the, the rhetoric is now starting to be escalated with not just more rhetoric, but with actual actions. And at some point, I think there, we, we, we could potentially sort of just sort of t- tail out of control. And I was hoping that the UN speech would have been a way of maybe, you know, saying, let's give sanctions a chance, let's, let's ratchet this down. It doesn't seem to be ratcheting down. And I was going to draw a connection here. It is that propensity for Trump to want to respond um, to the um, to Kim in the same um, Kim Jong in the same way that he responded to what at the top of our story here to to Steph Curry and others. Right. He doesn't seem to want to sort of just let things go um, as a way of de-escalating. He wants to keep escalating right. things. Right. And, and again, the, the use of, of the term "rocket man" yes. in that forum. I mean, it, it's sort of a one thing on Twitter, but I was surprised that he used that term, which he used on Twitter before the United Nations. Yes, I mean, again, demonstrating, I think, significant lack of respect, you know, for a foreign leader. And whether we like him or not, he is the leader of another sovereign country. And generally, diplomatically, you don't sort of call people um, derogatory names, um, 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 especially if you're trying to work problems out or trying to be diplomatic. Um, That's the kind of stuff that happens, you know, when problems, again, when they problems start to escalate off into exactly where we're going now. Now, whether or not we're going to escalate off into a military campaign or war or something, I have no idea. But I wouldn't say that after, but I would say that after today, with us now flying planes right along the edge of um, the demilitarized zone, that, you know, North Korea is not going to sort of back down and they're going to take a next step also. Right. Um, and and I, I must say, I, I've been ever since last Sunday when he first tweeted the rocket man, I have been playing that Elton John song yeah. in my head over and over. <laughs> but yeah. anyway, that's yeah. one one crazy little aside. I mean, last Sunday morning, I was just going, I can't get this song out of my head. Anyway, okay. okay so here becomes a great side question. Here, do you think sales of that song have gone up? I bet they have. <laughs> I, or the downloads? I, I would not be surprised. Let me see if I can find that out. All right. Um, but let me ask you, um, shifting gears here, uh, sort of back to the healthcare issue. Minnesota is suddenly facing a crisis um, in the healthcare situation that's kind of come up very, very quickly. Uh, the Republican legislature approved a fix, this reinsurance program, which puts all these high-risk people into one pool. And the result was going to be when they announced the premiums uh, in just – really, it's, it's under two weeks now, October 2nd, that there was going to be uh, – a in some cases, a decrease in premiums, and the premiums increases were at minimum going to be lower. Without that waiver, and, and apparently uh, it's good, there could be 20% higher. Mm-hmm. And also, um, and this just came to light, the, the, the governor held a news conference and, and was extremely sort of frustrated and upset about it. Uh, in addition to that, so you've got all the people who are going to face higher premiums in the and these these are the people who are buying on the single 
market, in the individual marketplace. Right. And, um, and, 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 and the, fix, the fix to help those individuals was a fix by the Republican legislature. Right, right. So, and now not only is that in jeopardy, so that's about 169,000 people uh, who get their, their insurance, they're you know, self-employed, mostly farmers, they are facing potentially drastically higher healthcare premiums without this waiver. And also there is suddenly going to be this dramatic cut to Minnesota care, which could eliminate, uh, eliminate entirely programs that serve a hundred thousand people who are essentially the working poor. Mm -hmm. Uh, and all of this came to light a week ago, apparently. Um, this is, this is a, a big deal. And, and, the governor seemed to be almost beside himself uh, at this news conference earlier this week saying, I can't even get Tom Price, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, to return my phone call. What, what, is, what do you think is going to happen here? I mean, Congressman Eric Paulson has weighed in, who's a Republican, saying this is, this is, we've got to get this waiver. We, we can't have these cuts to MnCare. Uh, so Republicans are trying to help here. Uh, Senator Franken has got Senator Lamar Alexander, a very powerful Republican, to try and intervene with uh, the Health and Human Services Department in Washington. So far, there hasn't been a breakthrough. There's, there's not, and that's going to be a good question. Of is, is it going to happen in the next two weeks, which is basically the start of the new federal budget year? And also, it has to happen as Minshore, actually the state of Minnesota, you're right, is starting to announce the new rates, starting to announce what? The new open enrollment period and so forth. First off, it's very, very unusual for states not to get waivers in terms of, you know, some, especially in health care. I think under the Obama administration, and I'm going to say even back under the Bush administration, go back to Clinton, that generally the federal government will give states waivers out of variety of things if they can sort of show that, that what they're doing is an alternative way of getting to some point in terms of whether it's health care or the environment, whatever it may be. So it's first unusual not to get those waivers. Two, it's highly unusual if you're not going to get that waiver for it to be sort of suddenly announced just like a couple of weeks in advance. Usually this stuff is something that is negotiated for, for months and months and months. Um, and then on top of which, again, the cuts now we're also talking about, again, these are also things that the state usually has an opportunity to sort of you know, plan for. But here the state is, is completely being caught by surprise. This is where I think the national health care debate over Obamacare comes into collision with state public policy. At the same time, you know, we know that the Trump administration has said that you know, even if Obamacare isn't repealed, they're not going to do a lot to sort of help it. So put all these kind of issues together, and which are kind of converging, the state of Minnesota faces a significant problem and. Unless unless this waiver is granted, and they kind of, they are connected, it's it's very complicated. It's very it's, complicated, and there's still no guarantee um, that the the waiver w will occur. Although I would be surprised if it doesn't happen, but but we're still sort of pushing it up very close to a deadline, which could still affect at least the initial um, um, announcements about the um, um, about rates for the year and enrollment. But what I'm getting at also here is think about for the last couple of years, state of Minnesota has talked about having budget surpluses. If all of this were to happen and collide, um, we're looking at the state of Minnesota having, I'm going to guess, um, either to have to make billions of dollars in cuts or figure out how to raise billions of additional dollars to pay for all of this. And this suddenly now makes um, the either a special session perhaps required or 
Um, it's going to make the next legislative session more interesting, which then connects us to the next issue we're going to talk about. Right, which is the, the complete breakdown of uh, the mediation. And I guess we probably should take our final break here, and then we can talk about that on the back end, uh, because I, I, I'm personally not surprised that the mediation broke down because they couldn't come to agreement for months. But um, right. Right. let's <laughs> let's talk. Let's take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, uh, this this breakdown of mediation. What comes next? Uh, I think some of the legislative funding ends on October first. October first is really soon. Uh, keep it here, folks. News Radio eight three zero. Nice job, Kevin Reed, pulling out the rocket band. Uh, David Schultz. This is the song that I yes. couldn't help but think about. Yes. Um, all right, folks, uh, before we get uh, into our next conversation, it is our time check is 848 certified McCarthy's Cadillacs, now up to 40% off MSRP. Shop McCarthyAuto.com. That's McCarthyAuto.com. All right, and that is Rocket Man. All right, uh, Professor David Schultz. Um, it's a great song. It's a wonderful song, although I, I still prefer Captain Tom by, Dave, by, by Bowie myself, but still a good song. Absolutely. All right. Uh, mediation breaks down between the governor and the legislative leaders. Uh, they had been ordered into mediation by the Supreme, Minnesota Supreme Court. I, I'm not surprised it broke down. I'm not either. I think, the, I think anybody who thought that they were going to be able to reconcile their differences um, – had to be pretty naive. Now, I think the Minnesota Supreme Court was hoping, beyond hope, that they would be able to mediate and work out work out their disagreements. Because at the end of the day, the Minnesota Supreme Court does not want to decide this case. But guess what? The case is back before them, and they may be forced to have to resolve this matter um, in terms of, um, of of the funding issue and eventually resolving the question regarding really ultimately how you draw the line between the constitutionality of the governor's line-item veto versus the the right of the legislature um, to be functioning and staying in business. The court punted on that question. I think they're going to have to address that question. So that that's my question to you. Does this mean automatically that it goes back before the Minnesota Supreme Court? And that's not completely clear at this point either. Now, um, we, they, the court never overturned the district court opinion rendered in, in Ramsey County Court. Um, so it doesn't look like it's going to go back there. Does this mean now it goes up back to the Minnesota Supreme Court? And if so, what are they going to rule on? Are they going to be ruling on the issue regarding temporary funding for the legislature to get them until they go to, until they come back in session in February? Or are they going to rule on the issue of the constitutionality of the governor's line item veto? That's not clear at this point. And so I'll be curious to find out after the two parties report back the governor legislature to the Supreme Court, what will, what will occur is, assuming they're going to take the case, it'll be the briefing orders. Um, and what I mean by that, they'll be directing the, um, the governor and the legislature to brief something unless, again, this is why I'm, I'm raising lots of questions because I'm not completely sure, unless the court's now prepared to say that based upon the briefs and arguments we've already heard, we're going to decide the case. I think there's just lots of questions here exactly what the next step is, but it does suggest that the next move is up to the Minnesota Supreme Court. Uh, but some of the funding here, it, it, it runs out October 1st. Exactly. And, and this is part of, 
of what I, what's at a dispute here is because the governor is claiming and saying that, well, there's still enough funding for you folks to be able to um, stay in existence until come back in session in February. Legislature is coming back and saying two things. First, um, there may or may not be enough funding, but B, that's not the issue. They're saying it's the issue of the fact that you try to you know, zero us out and to try to force us to do something by, um, and, and change the laws um, on, on, on tax cuts that you didn't like by basically putting us out of business. And so depending on and, and who did, we listen to... did the lower to, court say that part of it was unconstitutional? Yes, yes. The lower court did. Ramsey County Court did say that. And that's the part that the Minnesota Supreme Court didn't explicitly overturn. And th- that's why I find... Uh, what the Minnesota Supreme Court did a couple of weeks ago when it said go to mediation to be confused, somewhat confusing to start with, and, and again, maybe naive or hope, or maybe they were hopeful that something would happen. But now that the, t- the governor and legislature have said we have an impasse, and the mediator has agreed, by the way, that's the important point. The mediator has also agreed, off, I think, what a retired state judge. Um, we don't, I don't know exactly what the Supreme Court's going to do because you're right. We're going to have some funding run out on October 1st. Potentially, we could start to see some staffers and some of the people at the legislature start to get furlough notices very soon. We're in sort of, I think, both political and legal, legal limbo right now, and I'm not exactly sure you know, where all this takes us. Right. You know, at one point, I think in um, uh, Speaker Dowd's news conference, he actually went back and, and read a text that was four months old. I mean, it, it, you know, about... A, that there would have been agreement on the tax bill. So there seems to be uh, – there just doesn't seem any way they're going to agree on anything and somebody's got to make a ruling. Let me ask you why – and you, you explained, uh, I think, on our last show, the difference between mediation and arbitration. And mediation is when the two sides get together and try and work it out with the help of a third party. Arbitration is where that happens, but the arbitrator actually decides. Why didn't the Supreme Court just order them into arbitration or could they have done that? Uh, well, first off, I'm not even sure the Minnesota Supreme Court had the, has the constitutional authority to order them into mediation. Um, but, but they did. <laughs> but they did. They did. They did. Um, so, so that's a good question to start with. Um, but now it's arbitration. Um, I don't know if they have the authority to do that because what they'd be saying is that we're going to take two constitutional offices or bodies, the, you know, the executive branch and the governor, you know, and the legislature, and now have a, a third party who's not part of the court system basically listen to two sides and make a final decision. I'm just not sure that is constitutional in and of itself. If, if, the, if the Minnesota Supreme Court doesn't want to resolve this dispute um, and, and questions whether or not it has the legal authority to do so, it's certainly the case that an outside um, arbitrator would not have that authority to do it. You know, and one thing that hasn't gotten like a ton of attention is the cost of all this. Mm-hmm. I, I, mean, I mean, Dayton's office has been billed $245,000 in legal fees over this. You have to imagine that the legislature, I mean, these, these are top rung attorneys that are actually discounting their rates. Mm-hmm. You have to imagine that it's got to be another 245000 for the legislative side. Um, that's half a million dollars at half least, at minimum. At a minimum, and I suspect it's, it's, it's going to only escalate now and then throw in the fact that. You know, you know, if this is going to drag out for a few more months here, again, think about um, 
some partial or t- partial layoffs or what doesn't get done. This is kind of like when we had the government shutdown a few years ago. And I think we talked about this once. I did some calculations. It would have been cheaper for the government to keep the lights on and just keep going at, keep doing something as opposed to the cost of shutting down, being shut down and restarting. And it's the same thing here is that we're generating the litigation costs, the, the cost of potentially shutting down part of the legislature for a while. And again, for people who don't understand or haven't paid attention to this, this is coming out of the taxpayers' pockets. Right, and, and I think I think at some point there's going to be some sort of outrage over that. Um, so, so you think it goes back to the Minnesota Supreme Court, and I, they'll have to make some kind of decision here. They do, and again, exactly what the decision is going to be, I don't know, because. One possibility is for them to say, we do have the authority to order funding and we're going to fund the legislature until um, they come back into session in February. That would be the most minimal decision, I think, possible. A second one is for them to, and that doesn't really resolve the dispute, doesn't resolve the underlying dispute about the constitutionality of the light item veto. Um, a, a different stage would be to actually address that issue. And, and that's where I don't know where the court's going to go. Is it going to go look just at the funding issue and just say, let's do enough to keep the legislature going for another, what, three months or four months, or does it um, go even further? And now bring us back to the earlier story. What if um, the Trump administration doesn't give the legislature or doesn't give the state the, um, the waivers that it needs? My suspicion is you're going to have to bring the legislature back. I mean, that's going to be a, a bona fide crisis. It's going to be. And there's no way that you can let that one sit until, what, I think it's what, February? What's the right. February something this year when they're, our next year to come back in session, you're not going to let that That's one sit point. at that point. So it's a crisis. Right. Because, I mean, that, that you're talking about premiums that affect 160,000 people who are buying on the individual market. And then you've got 100,000 other people uh, who are getting these uh, benefits and, and health care through Minnesota Care that will be losing the benefits. I mean, that is a total of a quarter of a million people who are going to be drastically affected. And that, I think, is politically untenable on either side. So, so right. th- that, that is an interesting point. Well, we'll have to see what happens with that because that is a, a continued mess, yes. <laughs> to yes. say the least. All right. Well, listen, Professor David Schultz, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, and we'll see you next week. Goodness knows what's going to be going on by then. Who knows? Well, uh, it's always a new story. All right. Thank you so much. The one and only David Schultz. And I encourage you folks uh, who enjoy listening to him to check out his blog, Schultz's Take. Uh, it is always good, always informative, uh, always insightful. Uh, well, listen, uh, it's been great to be on this Saturday evening. I want to thank uh, the producer of this show, Susan Blanche. She always does a terrific job. She also is the producer for Jordana and, of course, um, Hall Douglas. Uh, so she's a very busy lady these days. So I want to thank her and also want to thank the studio coordinator, Kevin Reed. I want to invite you to tune in to WCCO-TV Sunday morning, tomorrow morning at 6 a.m., 10.30 a.m. On the 10.30 a.m. show, we will have stock market guru Pete Najarian and also Congressman Eric Paulson. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org slash savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone.